There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. This is Eat Sleep Work Repeat, a weekly podcast on happiness and work culture. Hello there, I'm Bruce Taisley. Thank you for listening. If you're a new listener this week, I really appreciate you tuning in. It's sort of a a weekly excursion into understanding how we can be happier in our jobs. And uh, over over the last few episodes, we've really sort of started delving into the science of good work culture. I think I've realised over the last 24 episodes, if we're going to improve work, we need to understand how our brains work. So last week's episode with Cal Newport hopefully gave you inspiration on that. Cal had a really clear system of how we can fix work. Next week, I'm chatting to Stanford professor, the amazing Emma Seppeler. And today's a slight gear change. It's a really nice, fascinating chat with a culture enthusiast, and that's Biz Stone. Biz was famous for one of the, the public faces of Blogger, and then he became a founder of Twitter. In, in 2017, after a time away, he returned to work at Twitter, and I, I chatted to Biz in Twitter's San Francisco headquarters. Our chat is largely about an interest in work, how to improve work. We talk about play. I've got sort of opinions. I think the word play is a bit of a hoax. We should use the word laugh rather than play. I think work should just be a good laugh. I think play makes it sound all a bit hipster. We talk about hack weeks and how sort of hack weeks can be one way to systematise creativity. I think Busy's philosophy is very people-centred. You know, people first, then technology. And so he gives a really interesting perspective on that. And he, he gives a, a really great series of stories about the early days when he, he worked at Google and then how he learned from that to set up the culture at Twitter. It's a lovely chat, really keen to hear your thoughts. As ever, all of the transcripts are up on the website, which is eatsleepworkrepeat.fm. You can listen to all the episodes there. If you are listening on the new Apple Podcast app, do slide down the page on uh, show more episodes, and you can give us a five-star rating. It's like the Uber for your ears. People do complain about Uh, underpaying the gig economy and that's true enough I'm earning nothing from this the thing I was really interested in is two things you describe yourself um, so so revisiting the stuff that you've actually put down you describe yourself as sometimes like the humanity when when you're a blogger you describe yourself as the humanity of blogger you know like yeah because it was all PhDs and computer science and nerds and so I, I realized that Ev sort of hired me to come to Blogger and be, before it was social media, I was the social part. Like I was, 
I was kind of making blogging into this regular thing because I was I was incredibly excited about it. I said, doesn't why isn't everyone else freaking out that like that the internet has has now become democratized? Anyone can publish to the internet. You don't need to know how to code. Isn't why isn't everyone freaking out? Like this is unbelievable. You don't have to know how to make a web page. You just pick a beautiful template and you type in a box. And you're, there's your thoughts and your opinions right there for anyone to see. So I went to work at Blogger and that's where I was sort of bringing guest bloggers into our main blog and just talk, you know, writing blog posts about what you could do with your blog other than like the obvious, how you could use it in work and school and all sorts of things. I was, I was, I was trying to brand it and mainstream it. Yeah, you know? because to some extent, like there's certain companies, aren't there, where their external brand or, or the way that consume people use their product becomes their brand, right? You know, so like. Um, well, that we had that for good for Twitter because yeah. we, in the early days, I blogged once a week to everyone who used Twitter, and I just said everything. I was just like an open book. I was like, this week, this broke, um, this we made this new thing. Uh, I've had a baby. People started to felt like they were brought in, yeah. part of the family. And then when all these uh, clones came up that actually worked way better than us, they were like, no, nah, we like these guys, even though they break all the time. We kind of feel like we're part of their group. It's sort of like organizations trying to wear their culture on the outside, isn't it? Well, like, it's also like to... anthropomorphizing a company so that it's like it feels like a person that you like. And I guess it doesn't fully work at scale or it doesn't fully work when, you know... I mean, if, if you're, Larry, if if you're Larry a Page nuclear started, power company, yeah. you can't have a folksy, yeah. you know, anthropomorphized, like, hey, y'all, we're going to do some nuclear... We're going to make sure it's safe. Don't worry about that. But we're going to, you know, we're going to do some stuff. We're going to do some tests. Don't worry about it. And reading it, it felt like it was sort of a manifestation of your... You seem to like want to have fun at work. You wanted to have laugh at work. You described, yes. and you know, I was interested whether those things all went together because you loved having fun at work, and, and yeah. work seemed to be like a source of amusement and stimulation it as is. much as anything else. I, I like. I can't work unless I'm unless I'm under crisis, like something like oh my god, something terrible is happening. We got to figure it out fast. I I love that. If everything's going perfectly, I'm really bored. And then two, I also, you know, you know, you know, you know, when you laugh at a funeral or you laugh in church or something. So then there's the humor that goes along with the critical situation. Like you're not supposed to be making jokes right now. This is like a serious thing. Of course, that makes me want to make jokes, right? Like, oh, we're screwed. <laughs> this is the last time we're going to, you know, and so that makes me want to, that makes it even funnier because you're not supposed to be funny. And I always used to say, I mean, I still say it, but I used to lecture this a lot. Um, that uh, that I think the new definition of capitalism should be you make a lot of money, you do good in the world while making money, so the the idea of a double bottom line, and then you're having fun while you're doing all this. And that, but if you don't have all three, you're actually not successful. Yeah. Right now, you're successful if you're making money, but I say add all add on those other two and add those to the definition of success. And then you're not, you're just making a lot of money. You're not successful. Because I spoke to Patty McCord, who created the Netflix culture document. 
And oh um, yes, okay, right. And uh, and so one of the things I said to her is that the thing that correlates most with happiness, well, with happiness, full stop, is having happy friends. But happiness at work is having a friend at work. And I said to her, it strikes me that like the Netflix culture document is this sort of hyper capitalism where they're not bothered about people having friends at work. And she said, that's right. We're not concerned about that. And so that's interesting. Because, Wait, they wrote about it. Yeah, but I mean, they like, don't, but they're not concerned about it. The, well, they no, they wrote about. Um, they're not necessarily concerned whether you're happy at work. They're just concerned about whether you're doing good work. It's interesting because well, there's you know, a difference between happy and feeling content and proud that you did good work. That's that's really key because if if you go home and you feel like you're not working as hard as your peers or you're just not, you feel like you're not clicking, you're not doing a good job. It's, it really takes its toll on you mentally, physically, you feel depressed, you know, um, not to, <laughs> not to um, sort of insult Evan Williams, but when I was working for him and we would have one-on-ones, he would ask me, do you really think you're doing your best work? And then, you know, I, you say, well, you can always do better, right? You can always learn more and you can always be a better version of yourself and do a better and learn more and do better. So I would say, well, I can always do better. So I guess I'm not doing my best work, which means I'm not doing a good job, which means I suck. And I would go home feeling like maybe I shouldn't even work here. Like I, I, I don't do anything like I'm doing a bad job. Whereas, you know, when I work, like, the opposite is, you know, it changed when, when we, were, we, were, we became peers. Uh, but, you know, when I work with Jack, it's just like, this is amazing. You're an amazing communicator. You're amazing. You're amazing at brand. Um, let's work on this together. I, I think the whole thing you just created is beautiful. Awesome. Perfect. We just need to change a few words. Let's go over it. I mean, then it makes you just feel like I kicked it out, I you know knocked it out of the park. Yeah, okay. I feel so you're great. talking there about different styles of yeah. That's I mean that's a different version of happiness, yeah. like a contentness. Yeah. And then and then and then there's also working. There's also the idea of just working, you know, four hours like strong a strong four hour solid work block. That can be a day, um, if you get that work done and you really nail it. There's a couple of questions I wanted to ask you. And so then I started to, I had imposter syndrome for so long. And then I realized, wait a minute, I can do things that other people can't do in like a year. I can do them in a week. And so like, I should feel proud of that. And it's, it's not based on like chugging, you know, putting in the hours and working from seven till nine. It's about the work that you do that's special and good. And it doesn't matter how long it takes. There's a couple of things I wanted to ask you. One was um, your sort of, your first proper job was a design job, right? Yeah. And uh, and it's interesting because, you know, if you look at Airbnb, a couple of the, the founders are designers. And they seem to be very culturally focused. And you, you gave an interesting example about design. You said, in design, there's more than one right answer. Right? Oh, yeah. The, and or, so, or there's no wrong answer. Yeah. yeah. And so consequently, I just I wondered whether there was a connection between the worlds of design and the worlds of creativity and that oh. you're always creating stuff or whether your interest in passion, uh, your passion for culture came from that or if they're unrelated. I was just, I was interested in exploring but that. I think 
the design is pretty much related to everything. Design broken down into its first principles is just uh, making choices, just making a lot, a lot of little choices that add up to something that's greater than the sum of its parts. So my first proper job was designing book cover, uh, book covers, and you know you took you pick a font, you pick a photograph, or you make a piece of art or whatever you do, and you assemble them all together, and each one is a choice, and then they're all layered on, and then they it looks awesome, or maybe it looks awesome, but it's not sales is like I can't move this. This, uh, this I need this to look like Malcolm Gladwell's Outliers, which was a bestseller. We we want it to look like one of those books, you know. And so, okay, fine. Back to the drawing. My, my, I found joy in, in designing book covers that were awesome to look at. Sales like were like, yes, we can sell this. And editorial said, this really speaks to what the book is about. And then I would, because my peers were like, ah, they're stupid. This is the greatest design ever. But I was like, you guys, the design is serving a job to be done, which is, uh, can the book, will the books fly off the shelves? Does it, does it, you know, is it representative of the content? Basically, All that stuff. if you smuggled a brilliant design through that those restraints, yeah, you felt like right. You then I was like, the then I'm like up first on the podium, yeah, you know? yeah, yeah, as opposed to second or third, yeah, because like, there's obviously there's. There's a lot of really unbelievably great-looking designs that never make it. But I wondered whether it was too, uh, too tenuous. But, it, but, but it's I connected. Just thought... You know, you see how it's connected to the regular world. Just decisions, like really good. You're designing things when you're designing yeah. things. But I just w- wondered whether and then you the can humanity, design a culture. I wondered whether the humanity in design meant that you were always. Whether your passion for culture came related to that, or maybe there oh, no, there's another thing that my passion for culture came from. Yeah, it did come from design, but it also came from a completely failed culture in my first startup. Right, and I quit, and then I was. And you worked at me- Google I, there as well. So before so, so. Google, I worked at a company called Zanga, which I started it was a very early social networking, social blogging service. X A N G A dot com. Pro tip. Don't name your company that. That's a name that you then have to spell. It's like a, it's like a joke. If you have to explain it, it's just not funny. Yeah. So um, we made that. That was that had all the things like all the early sort of progenitors of Facebook. You know, it was it was it had all that stuff. It had what I called Smurf, single multi-use rating and feedback systems, uh, which was an e-prop. So if you didn't want to leave a comment, you just gave them a little coin and a virtual coin that said I read your post and then you would get a link to your so they would then click on yours go to your post and give you one of these coins and that turned that had a network building effect um, it was like a like basically um, so what happened there was I, I designed that um, I designed that network uh, with, with a very empathetic sort of feel like what do people want to what are their personal Zanga diaries going to look and feel like? And, and you know, people really liked it. People came out on it. People poured their heart into it. I still meet people. It was very popular with Asian Americans in, like, the late 90s, early 2000s. And I still today meet people like, I had a Zanga. Oh, my God, I had a Zanga. I, oh, Amazing. my gosh, I said such silly teenager. But you said the culture didn't work. 
Um, and so what happened was, yeah, my the guys I started with, they had I didn't graduate college, but they did, and they went to consulting. And then as we we got to a million users, and that was like, okay, we're growing really fast. That's numbers, right? Yeah, that was good numbers. We and and. It was because we added web logging, which they didn't want to. I was constantly battling with these guys. They wanted to make a site that sort of emulated ePinions, if you recall, mm. in which you would um, you would you would write a review of everything you owned, books, CDs, whatever. I didn't own anything. I was seventy-five thousand dollars in debt. I was like, I don't own anything, and, I, and even if I own it, I'm not going to write about my forks. Come on. Um, so I, I was like, let's let people just write about whatever's happening in their day, in their life, their opinions, their thoughts, and then let's let them share it all. And so I finally got them to agree to that. We did that. The numbers took off. Um, people started joining. And then they started hiring all their, like, bros from right. the consulting world. And I remember, like, the straw that broke the camel's back for me was one of these guys. I had a phone on my desk. I rarely used my phone. I sometimes called my wife and said when I was going to be home, but I rarely used it. And one of these new guys came in and said, you don't use this, right? And as he was saying that, he took it and put it on his desk. And it just, I was like, that's, that was so rude. I, mm. I, what a, I, like, I've been here for two years here working on building this thing from the ground up. And this guy just comes and takes my phone. Like, I, 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 it's a silly thing, but I felt like he was just, completely being disrespectful and yeah. I said you know what I, and, I, and I realized my wife my wife was the one that pointed out to me that I was complaining every, every time I came home I was right. complaining at night and she was like I think you shouldn't work there anymore and then once that got into my head I was like yeah you know what I, I just don't like what it's become because uh, my original goal was let's start it in Boston and Cambridge yeah. near MIT and hire young entre- I mean young uh, engineers right out of MIT and, and Boston is where me and one of my other co-founders lived and they said no New York City because it's cooler also way more expensive anyway it just the culture went sideways and I quit and I realized later I was too green to realize at the time I should have worked to fix it to fix it yeah I should have given a presentation so what would you do today so what? that's what I did at Twitter when we started when we first created the actual company of Twitter like that week, I gave a, a presentation and I said, we're going to design our culture and we're going to treat it like a product. And for now, I'll product manage it. And these are the things that we're going to believe in and these are the things we're going to do. We're going to have volunteer days. We're going to um, we're gonna have something called Twitter for Good where we, um, we're going to help philanthropic organizations with whatever we can. Maybe we don't have money, but we'll give them our time. We'll help them with Twitter in some way. We'll do whatever we can. You know, We'll have food drives in the office. We'll have clothes, clothes volunteer days, and I organize all these things. And that made me feel good because it made me feel like, okay, if I can set the tone to be a place that I really want to work, you know, and then I had this, these six assumptions, which I can't remember them all now, but they were things like, Always assume that your coworkers are smart and have good intentions. Like Just they like went, a therapy thing, isn't they it? They went through the yeah. same uh, interviews that you went through to get here. So don't don't assume that since they laid out a plan and then three months later that plan isn't as good as they laid it out that they're that they're bad at their job. 
you know, go up and say, you know, what, what happened? How are you blocked and how can I help you? Because guess what? You're going to have a time when you're going to present something and your project isn't going to turn out right either. And it's, it's not your fault. It's just that there's things, life gets in the way and, yeah. you know, you, you scope it down and turn it out to what it turns out to be. And I mean, occasionally, yes, you should fire a person. They are not good at their job but you shouldn't assume that from the beginning yeah you know it's interesting what you say there about culture being the tone of a company because that seems to be really clearly the truth for me it's like, it's like know, the character how you behave it's like your to character. other people if you were a person it's like your character do you have integrity are you funny like we used to even hire for funny we, you know um we would be like is this did hey everybody was the guy funny or was the was the woman funny? Did she seem like she had a sense of humor? Because you gotta have a sense of humor to work at this yeah, place. Yeah, that's one thing I've really been uh, fascinated with. Because like one of the things when you study a lot about sort of good culture and good environment, you get this word play coming, and, and the yeah. danger with play, as a term, is it seems so trivial that other people are very easily able to criticize it. Yeah. And play, to some extent, for me, just means having a laugh at work or, or you know uh, well you actually just... the, the word play is extremely significant every living animal on earth learns through play you see lion cubs you know tumbling around and biting each other and scratching each other and they're learning how to hunt my point is when it comes to describing it in a modern workplace yeah then they think about foosball right yeah but that's not what, that's that's not not what, not what we mean we mean like play you know have fun like do something crazy like um, I remember when I when we were first designing Twitter, I said, you know, it'd be really funny, and I laughed out loud. I said, what if every time you made a tweet, we made a permalink, we made a whole web page just for that tweet, and I and I presented it, and it was in the font Georgia, and it was just huge. It was like twenty four point or thirty two point Georgia because it was just a tweet, and I had to fill up the page. So it was this gigantic text, and I laughed, and I said, look how silly this looks. But we kept it, because permalinks were good, because we wanted people to be able to link back to a tweet, somebody said. And um, over the years, it got more refined. But it came about as kind of a joke, like, check this out, you guys. Same thing with the bird. I drew a bird just because I wanted to draw a bird. I, I wasn't actually even thinking strategically. I saw, I saw that someone else had drawn a bird, and I was like, wait a minute, I know Adobe Illustrator. What if I wonder if I could draw a bird while everyone's at lunch? And I drew a bird and I was like, I showed it to Ev. I was like, hey, check it out. And he was like, that's cool. And I said, I drew it. And he was like, oh, nice. Good job. And I was like, wait a minute. Twitter. Why don't, why don't we have a bird for our logo? And that's when I realized, like, I, I sent it to a friend who's more a better illustrator than I am. And he, you know, turned it into, a, like, a, a little bird with a little hairdo. Yeah. And then later on we streamlined it. But yeah. You know, it was, it was play. That yeah. was all from play. And even the Twitter itself was a Hack Week project that Jack and I decided to just play around with. Like, could we get SMS to um, communicate with the web and the web to communicate with SMS? Let's just see. Let's just play around with that. Because that was like a time when was there was an existential threat to the organization that you were working No, at, right? we, our organization was falling apart. We were trying to sell it. And um, Ev made the call of just... Hey, everybody, I'm going to try to find a buyer for this podcasting company that we had started in 2004 um, or 2005. Uh, I'm going to try to find a buyer in the meantime. Just 
skeleton crew on Odeo and the rest of you just pair up and make a project. And Jack and I had become friends, so we paired up and we made Twitter. And it was play. Yeah. We had a play. We literally had a playground right outside our office. It sort of loops back because when you, like, if, if you look at the stats about people at work, half of all people say they are lonely at work. Um, people, these, these big stats about people feeling exhausted at work, which I think is a reflection of if you're living on adrenaline and cortisol yeah. and, and sort of you're in, in, injecting stress into your life by checking emails all the time, then it, yeah. it's certain that you feel exhausted. If you feel exhausted, see, there's, you should feel energised. There, I, I once went to a, 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 a lecture by a, a famous designer named Milton Glaser, and he said, if you spend an hour with someone, whether it's a dinner, an interview, a baseball game, whatever it is, and after that hour you feel exhausted, that's probably a toxic working relationship. But af- if after that hour you feel energized, then that's probably a good partner okay. to work with. And so I always thought, I always, when I did interviews, I was always like the closer. And if I felt like perked up after interviewing someone, I was like, we got to hire this person. This person's great. And the same thing is true. I mean, I love my family and I love spending time with my family. But when I wake up in the morning, I'm like, ah, I get to go into Twitter today. It's going to be awesome. I love it. I love all the people. I love all the things that I get to do. And if you don't feel like that, then... Either you need to try to figure out how to fix it, or maybe you just shouldn't work here, you know? You should find a place that you that you wake up in the morning and you're like, I can't wait to go to work. Yeah. It feels like you sort of what you said about your one of the first jobs, where you were sort of coming at home and you're unhappy, and there was, there was yeah. sort of, you know... Zanga, yeah. Yeah, it's finding the place between those two constantly, things. At first, I loved it, because I was building things and making things, and people were starting to use them and flock to them. And I was noticing behave, their behavior and adapting the, you know, adapting the service to uh, give them what they wanted so they would be even happier. Ma- making those people happy made me happy. And when I quit, I felt like I was on the wrong side of the screen is what I felt like. I was like, oh man, why did I quit? And so um, I, I worked at Wellesley College for one year helping them. Uh, helping the teachers use blogging and and um, in their classrooms, which was a, was really great actually. But then Google came calling and said, "We want you to work on Blogger that we've just purchased." And I was like, "Okay, well, I'll go there." What was the culture like at, at Google at the time? Oh, it was it was an amazing culture. I mean, they it's funny about Google is they present play everywhere, but they don't really do it. Hmm. Their culture goes like this. It's an ordered list. It's a simple ordered list. And it's backwards of my ordered list. Their ordered list goes like this. Number one, technology. Number two, people. So they're like, they make something. And they give it to the people. People don't like it. They're like, fine, let's make this. People don't like it. Fine, let's make this. People don't like it. Fine, let's make this. People don't like it. Fine. They don't get into the people and say... I wonder what the people want and how we can help them get, achieve that. Um, you know, they struck gold when they... Basically, what Google did was it fixed the internet. The internet was growing so rapidly that there was no way to... Yahoo had a directory, but then that fast became like unusable. You couldn't... There, there was, it was growing at such an unprecedented rate that there's no way to have a good directory. So Google just said, forget the directory. We'll just find you the relevant page based on keywords. And then it was like magic. I remember the first time I used Google, I was like, 
oh my gosh, it just instantly brought me to exactly the right thing. So it fixed the internet. It made the internet usable. And what was and it like to work there then? So, so, cause so you, what it was like you went work? on as the, the acquisition of... Yeah, so of we went there and it was amazing to work there because they, you know, they ha- everything was brightly colored and there was toys everywhere and balls everywhere and they, you know, but, and there was a volleyball court in the middle of the Googleplex when... I got there before the Googleplex, and then they built the Googleplex, and then they built all kinds of other buildings. But people, it wasn't necessarily physical play, but they were really, they were playing. They were just experimenting like crazy. You know, I would, I, and I would walk around for fun, just opening doors. And, you know, I would walk in. I walked in on somebody who was sitting on the floor barefoot with all these wires and DVRs and TVs everywhere. I said, what are you doing in here? And he said, and he just looked up sort of like as if he was, had been awake for like 48 hours. And he was like, I'm recording every TV show airing at the moment <laughs> in the world. And I was like, okay, carry on. And, you know, I would go into another room. Like Twilight Zone. Yeah. I mean, I mean, they were just doing all these crazy things. Like, we want to organize the world's information. Like, and TV is one of them, you know. And then I went into another room and there was all these people on these weird contraptions with like a light over them and stepping on a foot pedal like a sewing an old-fashioned sewing machine and um a glass table in front of them and i was like what's going on in here and somebody said we're scanning every book ever published in the world and i was like wow that's a lot of books <laughs> I mean, it must have been tempting just to keep opening doors I, oh yeah it was amazing yeah it, it was real and then i would find somebody like i found this guy named misha he's a russian programmer and just he was always just doing weird stuff like i don't know what his real job was but he was like peace i have no idea for clock okay it's a straight line and did it and he would i I forget what it was but he was like invented a new way of telling time and then um i was like that's really cool let's take it to ev and we brought it to ev and ev was like what happens when it's one o'clock and he immediately found a flaw like it it was it like didn't work when it was one o'clock somehow and misha was like uh this is a bug okay <laughs> and i was like misha what did you even do he's like i'm very smart i do my job 10 minutes it's over it's easy i spend the rest of it and then he would just clasp his hands behind his back and walk around. there was another guy who would just juggle like all, like for a good two hours every day outside and his name was his name was uh, Voldemort. It was a lot like the Harry Potter the bad guy. Yeah. And he was a really kind of weird guy. Like, I would go up to him and I said, don't you feel kind of strange just juggling in your crazy outfit in front of everybody, like, all day long? And he was like, no, why should I? And I went in on the weekend one time and he was just plastering the walls with pictures of Mars. And I was like, did you take these pictures? Thinking maybe he somehow had a super powerful telescope or something. He's like, no, I just like Mars. And, and they were, but they were all over. Like, and he, you know, he was, he was just a weird guy. <laughs> so, so just sort of to finish So there off. was a lot of play. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, 
edges and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1, only from Rust-Oleum. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. So to finish off, just, you know, the, the one thing you've mentioned there is, you know, the, trying to be the humanity of a company and, uh, and the fact that you'd love playing, laughing at work. Yeah. Is there any other things that you think, you know, You've just returned to Twitter, haven't you, this year? Is there any other things that you think, either here here at Twitter or sort of elsewhere, that you think are vital parts for good culture? One of the vital parts that we brought back is tea time, local tea time. Not a global thing, but... Do you want to explain what that is? Well, tea time, it started out as, we call it tea time because... I said we should copy Google in that every Friday we should stop work and gather around and talk about the week. Uh, what did we ship? What, did, what went wrong? And if anyone has anything interesting to show us, whether it's their own work or some other people's work outside that they find inspiring or interesting, whatever, let's show it. Let's do it. And Jack said, great, we'll do it at 4.05, which is tea time. So I'll, I'll make tea for everyone. And I bought beer and put it in the fridge. And so... Everyone just drank the beer. So we call it tea time, but everyone drinks the beer. There's no tea. <laughs> um, so we brought back tea time. We, we originally did it every Friday, and then when Dick became CEO, he sort of made it like, I don't know, some every other Thursday globally so that everyone could tune in through a stream or whatever. And I said, let's, no, everyone just do it your own local tea time on Fridays. And be a group and that's really important because it gets people um seeing what happened that week and then um social social hour afterwards where you you can talk i can talk to some sales guys that mm. i never would talk to any ever in my normal daily yeah. work um so that's important it's important to like have fun and make fun of a lot of the leadership team you know, everyone's like, oh, it's Jack Dorsey. Like, oh, my gosh, I better look away. He's like, I can't sit next to him. He's so important. And, you know, I just I just take the piss out of him all the time. And he, he loves it. He doesn't, you know. Um, like, just the last tea time, you know, Hack Week starts this week. And so on Friday, I'll show you the video. On Friday, um, I hired an internal filmmaker. And specifically to make films to show at every tea time some of them funny some of them whoa i didn't know we even did that that's amazing i didn't know we fought the dust the department of justice and won 
to so that they couldn't put a gag order on our transparency reports like that's amazing like that's a trailblazing thing or like i didn't know we had a neighbor nest which watches um low-income uh to single mother's kids uh, while they learn the computer like this is like tear-jerking like uh, what this woman was able to accomplish because of us and so i want to make all these films so that people realize this is twitter you know be proud feel proud and the the video that we made last week was just a hilarious video basically explaining what a hack is and then explaining at the end how you know twitter was born from a hack week so it's in our dna it's very important that we do this every year because it's part of our culture it's part of our dna and so do anything you want you don't have to fix a bug you can do anything you want whatever you want so i wanted to drive that home to people we were born from a hack so go crazy and make any hack you want i have a hack too which is i, think, you I, doing think, one it's, I think it's gonna win yeah mine's gonna win mine's the best one and so what so that's anyone can do that for the whole week yeah anyone who signed up to make a hack and then what they did was they pitched and recruit. Um, they pitched and recruit last Friday, on Friday. And um, what they do is they say, "This is my hack, and we need uh, iOS developers and a, a backend engineer to join us." And then you can join the team that you like. If you didn't make your own team, you can still join the team. Yeah. And uh, and so there was a gr- lot of great hacks put forth. And then all week, all this week, people are just going to work on their hacks. I mean, not everybody chose to do it, but hundreds of people are going to work on hacks, and we're going to, again, we're going to make a film out of it, and they're going to be judged, and there's going to be, like, uh, trophies given out, and then there's going to be a People's Choice Award, and then maybe one of these things makes it into actual Twitter, if it's, you know, if it's a Twitter thing. What I like about it is that how these, like, uh, people realize, if I'm going to make my hack win, I need to build a tribe. And so it, you've just got like someone who's had yeah. this idea that they've been carrying around for right. weeks and months and years. And I've like, had this, the, my hack is an idea I've had since 2002. Right. And I finally realized how it could be put into Twitter because alone, I don't think it would ever get the traction or, or, or it would never work as a standalone thing. But once it's, if it were to be built into something that, ever, that hundreds of millions of people just use every day, now we're talking. And that's it. So, like the building, getting two or three people who can help. Yeah, it's and really fun. I mean, how it's amazing because we have Hack Week, and we ha- and like if your tw- if your thing relates to Twitter at all, you have scale already. Mm. It's th- which is really awesome. You know, like getting scale is the hardest thing to do when you're building a new app. Fantastic chat with Biz there. Next week, we've got more science. We're chatting to Emma Seppler, who's got a really clear idea about how can we combat exhaustion at work? How can we combat the sort of the feeling of being overwhelmed? Uh, so if you are interested, do tweet us. More than anything, I want to hear from people who feel like they've got boring jobs. I want to hear from people who feel like they've got something to share and we can help improve their job. So please do get in touch. You can find us on Twitter, Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat, or contact us via the website, eatsleepworkrepeat.fm. Thank you for listening.
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.